I remember the last night in the Sydney Olympics, Shane Hill, Wayne Peterson, the quarter announcer from the Melbourne Tigers, Maddie Nielsen, who went on to have a great international career, and myself, we all went down to Darling Harbour to watch the closing ceremony because we get a little bit sheltered inside the Olympic Village because we go to the games, we come back, we sit in our room, we go and eat, we train, we do the same thing the next day. So to experience that, to see with the average Australian was fantastic. Probably my Olympic highlight was seeing how everyone was enjoying the moment. And you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 35 and thanks for joining me. My website, inallairness.com. Just add a forward slash and the episode number to view show notes. On this episode, I'm happy to welcome three-time National Basketball League champion, four-time Australian Olympian and former NBA player, Mark Bradkey. Mark talks about his entry into competitive basketball and we discuss his quick rise into Australia's basketball elite. We chat about his time at the Australian Institute of Sport and later his playing days with the Adelaide 36ers in Australia's NBL. We talk about Mark's decision to move interstate to play for the Melbourne Tigers, joining forces with Andrew Gaze and Leonard Copeland, helping the team win its first NBL title in 1993. Just recently, the Tigers celebrated their 20th anniversary of the 93 championship, and Mark talks about the reunion and the special bond that he shares with those players and personnel. We also talk about Mark's outstanding Olympic career, where he represented Australia four times. He talks about his opportunities to attend NBA training camps, plus the 1997 season that he spent playing with the Philadelphia 76ers. He is open and honest and talks about his time in the NBA and gives some wonderful insight into the trials and tribulations of that experience. In 1997, Mark returned home to Australia. We talk about the contrast of leaving a struggling NBA franchise to resuming his career at home and winning a second NBA title just months later. We also look back at his 2002 MVP season. He also offers his opinion on the current state of basketball in Australia, plus his future ambitions within the sport. Now, the conversation is also scattered with references to the history of Australian basketball. Aside from his Melbourne Tigers teammates, we talk about other greats like Shane Hill, Luke Longley, Andrew Vlahoff, and numerous others from Mark's era. Thanks, Mark, for making yourself available to talk. Now, on to the show. My guest today is an all-time Australian basketball great. He's a three-time NBL champion. He was named the MVP of the league in 2002 and is a four-time Olympian. He played in Europe and was also a member of the Philadelphia 76ers in the 1997 season. Mark Bradkey, thanks for joining me. No worries, thank you. Great to have you on today. Now, we might just quickly start off on a serious note. Within the first two sentences of your Wikipedia page, aside from your outstanding play, it says that you're well known for your mullet. Some oh, good, really? Good memories there? Uh, yeah, well, that's a good thing about uh, having different hairstyles is that uh, you know which era you're in because some players get the same hairstyle the whole time, whereas at least mine, uh, I can sort of find out, okay, that's where I was at that time. But I haven't checked Wikipedia for many years, so I wouldn't know. 
No, understandable. Just a bit of a, a light yeah. moment to kick off there. Now, in terms of history, the timing of our chat today is excellent. As we record this, it's right around the 20th anniversary of your 93 Melbourne Tigers championship season. Inside the last month or so, amongst other things, your team was honoured in a ceremony at the Tigers home opener in Melbourne. How was that feeling of getting together again with so many players, coaches and friends to reminisce about that magical season? Uh, quite scared, to be honest. Um, means we're all getting really old. Um, <laughs> but it was uh, it was nice. Everybody caught up on Saturday night before the game on Sunday, and we had a nice dinner. Ray Gordon organised a dinner for us in Melbourne, so just about everybody was there. I think our Westover couldn't make it, but I think every other person was there. They were all a bit bit heavier than they were before, maybe a little less hair and a little greyer. But um, it was a nice opportunity to see people maybe you haven't seen before, whether living in the state or you know lives take different directions. So it was really good to uh, have an opportunity to catch up. Ah, oh, that's excellent. Now, am I right in saying that going back into your basketball history, you only started playing basketball after watching the 1984 LA Olympics? Yeah, well, yeah, I was, I was about 14, 15, I moved from Adelaide up to Queensland, and I used to play Aussie rules and, uh, and cricket, and that's all I did, so uh, all of a sudden you go up to Queensland and there's no footy, I sort of didn't do much the first year, I just sort of skateboard and you know, windsurf and things like that, and then I... Um, I saw basketball on TV and I thought, that looks all right. Give that a go. And uh, started playing for a club in 85, just a local club in, in Adelaide. At that stage, I moved back to Adelaide. And uh, yeah, three years later, I made the Olympic team. Yeah, an incredible rise for sure. You quickly ascended into contention with the South Australian State League and then representative selection uh, in the mid-1980s, as you said. Now, yep. granted, you're blessed with heights and great athleticism, but were you surprised at how quickly you made the rise to prominence and then en route to your scholarship with the Australian Institute of Sport? Um, no, because I think I was very naive. I didn't know the process. I didn't know um, about junior rep ball. I didn't know, I didn't know anything. So... I was like, oh, okay, this is what we all do. So in some ways, that was great because you are naive. You don't have expectations or preconceived ideas about anything. So by going so quickly, it wasn't as I was thinking, oh, gee, I've got this now. I've got the next thing. It just sort of happened. I think I was lucky in a way. Um, if you've been working for 10 years at something and then you're finding the opportunity, sometimes you put even more pressure and more stress on yourselves. Whereas I think I was, I was lucky very, very lucky that I didn't have time to become aware of it all, really. Like I, like I said, I watched the Olympics on TV, the, the one beforehand, but I didn't pay any attention to say, oh, what's an opening ceremony? What's a closing ceremony? You know, what other athletes are going there? I just saw basketball. I thought, oh, that looks good. So I went to the Olympics and didn't know that much about it. This is a long time ago now. This is <laughs> There's no smartphones. There's no Google. There's no emails. So no YouTube. Um, it was a different world. In, in a lot of ways, it was great to be so naive and just go there and just play and not think I'm playing against such and such a player who's had a great career or whatever. It's just you go out there and play. Yeah, I love the uh, honesty of the answer. So thank you for sharing that. Now, from what I can tell, 1986 was the first appearance that you made on the Australian junior men's team. However, yep. The 87 squad featured yourself, Luke Longley, Shane Hill, and Andrew Vlahoff. Now, that's an incredibly imposing squad if I've ever heard one. Do you mind just talking about that era of Australian hoops and some of the friendships that you've formed and have nurtured ever since? Yeah, well, um, I was lucky. The four of us actually went to the Institute of Sport in 87, so we spent a long time there. Shane Frolling, who's a man from towns for a long time, he was involved with that team there. Who always played significant NBL time there? Probably missing people out, I can't recall. But uh, yeah, so we sort of, we went on many tours and we travelled through Europe and the States and played lots of games. But 
the, the most pleasing, I suppose, aspect. I had, uh, Hammer didn't go to the 88, but I know Luke, Vlahov and myself were selected as 17, 18-year-olds going to the Olympics, which if you had that now, I'm sure, I know Adrian Hurley caught the fair bit of stick about it, apparently at the time. Like I said, I was so naive. I didn't, I wasn't reading papers back then. Mm-hmm. More comic books. But, um, <laughs> so to pick three guys who hadn't, Two hadn't played in the NBL. I'd played a little bit. The other guys were in college. It was a big step for, for Adrian. But I think, obviously, it turned out very well because um, Andrew went to four Olympics. I went to four. Luke went to three. And uh, Shane ended up going to four. But um, So I had virtually those guys, along with Andrew Gaze, right through all my Olympic experience. So um, when it sort of came time to 2000, they were sort of all retiring. And we had medical staff. We had Peter Harcourt and Craig Purdom, who were the medical staff, who I'd known since 1986. We all sort of finished at the same time uh, in 2000 so it was um as a nice way to finish especially in sydney i wasn't really that fussed whether it was in sydney or where it was but um once you got there and saw the um, excitement and i know the last night in the sydney olympics shane hill wayne peterson the quarter announcer from the melbourne tigers maddie nielsen who went on to have a great international career and myself we all went down to darling harbour to watch a closing ceremony and I think that was probably one of the highlights of my Olympic experience because I got to see how other people celebrate the Olympics because we get a little bit sheltered inside the Olympic Village because we go to the games, we come back, we sit in our room, we go and eat, we train, we do the same thing the next day. So to experience that, to see with the average Australian was fantastic. It was probably, like I said, probably my Olympic highlight was seeing how everyone was enjoying the moment. Well, that's answered perfectly the question I was going to ask you about that, being a four-time Olympian, what stood out the most? And it's interesting to hear that that's the case. So, yeah, that's really great. You played for the Adelaide 36ers for five seasons in Australia's NBL, and you were named the most improved player in 89. Do you Mm -hmm. mind just talking a little bit about your time in Adelaide and then how your game had developed during that period of time? Um, I had great elder players in my early years in Adelaide, and the most significant one was uh, Mark Davis. And playing against a guy that was undersized, but 6'5", 6'6", but incredibly strong and fierce rebounder and attacking the basket. So I had to go against him every day of practice. So to, to have that was the best learning experience you could ever have. And uh, games seemed easy because he'd beat you up and he'd never call the foul. And uh, I used to work, you know, your butt up every day just trying to keep up with him. So for my first five years, I had Mark Davis there and that was, you know, the best learning experience anybody could have. So, uh, you know, I thank him a lot for, not at the time I didn't realise it, but it, it made me, you know, to what I was, I think, because I saw how he went about his work on the court. That was the way he, he rebounded, you know, relentlessly and, and actually passed his uh, rebounding record in Adelaide and he gave me the game ball. So that was very significant time for me as well. So, uh, yeah, he was, you know, fantastic. But also we had uh, you know, Al Green, we had Daryl Pierce, Mike McKay, um, Bill Jones. They had an awesome team. Before I got there, just with, you know, Ken Cole was the coach and he was flamboyant and, and basketball was massive, you know, just, it was, it, the coach Ken Cole was like a rock star coming in. So uh, it was a great growing up experience to see, you know, the times in Adelaide. And Adelaide people are very passionate about basketball too. Yeah, they definitely are. And that's a great story about the um, getting the game ball as well from, from Mark Davis because I think you were in the top five rebounders in the NBL for maybe 12 or 13 seasons over your whole career, which is just incredible in itself. Uh, yeah, something like that. I used to always, well, one of the reasons coming to the Tigers, Drewy and Cope shot the ball so much, you knew it was going to miss a lot. So there's always plenty to go around. But um, yeah, that was my thing. You know, I wasn't going to be a three-point shooter or not going to be certain aspects. I think it's important that when you do play a game, any game, what sport, you have roles to fill. And one of my roles was to, to get the rebound, get the outlet pass, 
Pastor De Drew, who was sitting at the half court line, waving his hand, saying, "I'm free." Um, and uh, yeah, but that, it worked out perfectly. I love it. I love that sense of humour. That's great. Now, um, in late July of 1989, I want to just take your memory back to see how well you recall this. The recently retired Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he had a farewell tour that visited Australia, and yep. his team played against your uh, Australian Boomers in a three-game yep. series. My yep. best mate, Nick Crawford, and I, we went to game one in Melbourne. Yep. Do you mind just describing the memories of that series, and how did it feel going up against the NBA's all-time leading scorer, albeit in the latter stages of his playing days? Yeah, no, awesome. Um, it was the first time we really had NBA players out to Australia, I believe, and to have you know someone of Kareem's stature, notoriety, was an awesome experience, you know. Artis Gilmore was there, George Gervin was there, Dwayne McLean ended up playing in Sydney was there. You know, fantastic, you know. All of a sudden, then you're playing at Melbourne Park, Flinders Park back then, Rod Laver Arena. Now, big crowds and, yeah, it, it was very good. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, so you, you're guarding either Kareem or you've got these guys and you're like, you know, what's going on here? This is, I think actually Bob McAdoo might have been in there as well. Fantastic Hall of Fame NBA players playing in our backyard. So uh, it was very nice. Actually, uh, I remember I passed the ball in the loop on the post and cut through and he gave me a little dish pass back and I actually broke the backboard. On the dunk, so not on a jump shot, on a dunk. So uh, that was sort of a nice way to go and tape it up a bit, but um, it was awesome, you know. And we got to meet those guys. Not so much Kareem, but the other guys are really good. I think we played three or four games around Australia and got to meet them and learn a little bit about them and uh, realise that they're just normal people. And it sort of put sometimes you, you you make people out to be a whole lot better than you are, or they do things differently. But they're just very they're, they're good people, but they're just very talented at what they do. So uh, just makes you say, okay, I've got to try and challenge them. Oh, that's interesting to hear. That's great. Uh, now, I listened to a great conversation that you had with Nat from andthefoul.net, and I'll put mm-hmm. a link to that in the show notes to this episode. You briefly talked with him about some NBA training camps that you attended in Portland, Detroit, Phoenix, and San Antonio. And at that yep. time, all four of those teams were, were good to very good in that era of the NBA. Do you mind just talking a little bit about the opportunities, that how they presented themselves, and some of the guys that you were competing against in the hopes of making that NBA roster? Yeah, look, it really was a different world back then. Um, obviously, and if you're in the States, you, you get in the papers, you're watching the, the, the TV, you find out who's on your team. But um, even right up to when I went to uh, Philadelphia in 1996-97, uh, I didn't know who was on the team. So my first, uh, I got a phone call one time, I was in the States, and I had a, uh, I think I had an agent who knew, yeah. And anyway, a guy called Brad Greenberg from Portland, he invited me along to the camp. I'm like, yeah, fantastic. You know, the uh, veterans camp and, you know, playing alongside Clyde Drexler and uh, Duckworth and uh, Buck Williams and Jerome Kersey and Terry Porter. You're like naming these people. You're like, wow, I'm just thinking about it now for the first time. You know, unbelievable. Cliff Robinson was there. Uh, Mark Bright, he's one of the assistant coaches in the NBA teams now. So getting to play against and train against those guys was unbelievable. Drazen Petrovic was there. Dwayne McLean was there. Um, this is also, I like I said, I was very naive for a lot of times, you know, so I go there and you work hard and you train, you might get a bit of time, you might not. But I did that several times with um, with those other teams as well. So would it have been better to go to a team not as good? Well, probably. But um, at the same time, I didn't have a lot of, you know, you know, you're getting a lot of options. If they ask you to go, you say, yep, sure, I'm there. Away we go. Let's see if we can get it. So there was always a lot of media hype if you said you were going somewhere. So I try to keep it quiet most of the times. It was an awesome experience to go and play against these. I know I went to Phoenix and, you know, I know Steve Nash was warming up in the court alongside of you. So you watching him or you go and, yeah, it's just, it was just, it was a fantastic experience to see um, how they go through their motions and what we were doing back here at the time. And, uh, yeah, fantastic. 
Yeah, you reeled off some fantastic names too. So when you talk about some of those greats that were playing with Portland and yeah. a lot of those other teams, there's some just incredible players that you must have taken some tricks of the trade from, even just being up against them briefly in some scrimmages and whatnot too. Yeah, yeah. I know, like, I was in Philly, I was with a guy called Michael Cage, who wasn't, it was uh, well past his best at that stage, but he played like a thousand, twelve hundred games in a row or something like that, and we used to travel in the car to him from training a fair bit, but just uh, talking to him, and I know one time we were in a timeout, and I was like, mate, what's the coach going to tell you that you don't already know? <laughs> you know, <laughs> not being uh, blase about it, but if you played in that many games, and he was like, you know, there's always something to learn. And so it was good to, to I like to, um, I suppose the, the older guys, I'd always sort of gravitate around those ones there to try and learn and, and see what, how they work and go about their training sessions or the quality people, the dedication, they're the guys that survive, play a long time and be successful. So it's always good to try and gravitate towards those people. Yeah, sure. And Michael Cage, one of the great NBA rebounders of all time, even p- yeah. perhaps a little bit undersized, but still was an incredible workhorse on the boards too. So that's Without good. a doubt. Yeah, good to hear. In 1993, you made the decision to play for the Melbourne Tigers. So after yeah. you finished the 92 season, I believe you briefly played in Europe before returning yeah. to Australia and making the yeah. move to Victoria in, in, for Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that probably presented a few or numerous challenges. Do you mind just talking a little bit about that transition, Mark? Yeah, I... Um I played my last game in Adelaide right before the Olympics, and I had already accepted an offer. So I actually had my, probably my best game in the NBL. I had 43 points and 25 rebounds in the one game. So I sort of went out with a bang, which was really nice. Went to the Olympics uh, in Barcelona and felt really comfortable. You know, the first time, first Olympics, you're not quite sure. Second one, I felt really comfortable, but we finished sixth, I think it was. So um, we missed the crossover game. Went and played in Spain for a while, but um, the team was really unsettled. And I had a clause in there saying... After in December, I can either accept the remainder of the contract or, or opt out. And I, originally, I accepted. Then I thought about thought, mm, I don't know. You know, so um, I said no. And then um, there was a little bit of uncertainty about going back to Adelaide. Even before I left, I wasn't quite sure if it was time to move on. And then when I made the decision, obviously, there was a bit of a stink about, a stink about it. Carried on for a few years. But um, it was a decision that I made. And then I, I came across here to, uh, to Melbourne. So um, we had a crap start as well. We were, I think we were three and nine at one stage or... Two and seven, three and nine. So um, it always takes a while to gel. Then we uh, then we started stringing it together. Yeah, definitely. Now to say that you had a pretty good game to finish your Adelaide career, forty three and twenty five is <laughs> incredible numbers. So you're perhaps understating that a little bit, but yeah, that's yeah. phenomenal. Was that your high high scoring game, forty three points? Yeah, and my highest rebounding game too. Yeah, that's that's huge. Now, as you mentioned, the Tigers got off to a bit of a rocky start in your first season there, but you pulled it together towards the end of the season. I think, from memory, you were like 17-1 and one or something to... Or yeah, no, we that, got on a roll, something like that, yeah. Yeah, you went on a massive roll. Actually, that might have even been the 97 season, now I think about it. But yeah, you well, went we, on a we, massive... We, yeah, we did it a couple of times. In 97, I think we sucked as well at the start. Yeah. <laughs> and then we could go on again, so... Uh... You ended up winning that 1993 title. You're up against Andrew Vlahoff and the yeah. Perth, Perth Wildcats, so a guy that yeah. you had numerous ties with going back many years. Yeah. Mind just talking about the first season, particularly the roll through to the grand final series. Uh, I have a pretty ordinary memory. I'll try and do that. Yeah, we watched the uh, the tape this other night. Ray Gordon put it together, um, put one uh, on for us. But um, yeah, going into our third game in Perth, and we'd never won in Melbourne Tigers. I'd never won in Perth, so obviously it was all stacked up against us. But um, coach was on fire. He was really going well and. Came right down to the end, and to get the victory over there, very sweet. I can recall coming back into Melbourne and landing, and then having fans from the rival gate all the way down to Badger Claim will just stick with people. There were three or four thousand people at the airport when we came back in. So 
unheard of, exciting, yeah, good moments, you know, but it was pretty special, and like I said, to win it, your first one, and to win over in Perth, where, you know, the Tigers hadn't won before, you know, and they had Scott Fisher, James Crawford, Ricky Grace, Andrew Vlahov, um, it's a very talented people right there. For sure. Now, speaking of, let's chat about that game three in Perth. It was obviously an absolute classic. The Wildcats were down by double digits with under 90 seconds to play in the game. So it was an incredible comeback to get into the last couple of seconds. And uh, on the inbounds play with about 10 seconds left, you had the task of guarding Andrew Vlahov, who held onto the loose ball just before it went into the backcourt. And then he had a chance to perhaps tie the game and send it into OT. Do you mind just talking about those ensuing seconds, what was going through your mind? Yeah, I know, um, I can't recall a lot before, I know he took the three-pointer and it went virtually in and then popped out. It, it spun around the, the hoop two or three times, popped out, and then Andrew Gay's got the rebound and put his elbows up to protect the ball and, and popped Watto in the, in the face, but then Andrew had two more foul shots just to, uh, to seal it up and uh, he was quite emotional on that. But uh, yeah, that shot, I didn't realise we were up by that many with such a short time to go, but um, yeah, Vlav had played huge the whole series and... He was obviously taking his advantage over me and, and taking me outside a bit and trying to get me off the dribble or, or shoot the three. So um, nearly went in, and uh, I felt sorry for him. Um, straight after the game, you know, as you know, you do with the opposition, you're like, well, sorry, you know, it's, you know, it had to be one of us, so I'm glad it was us. But, um, yeah, so close to, uh, you know, changing a, a half a revolution of the ball. Incredible. It was an amazing ending, and I refreshed my memory via YouTube, of course, in the lead-up to this chat today, and with mm. about a minute and a half to go, they were down by 11 points, so it was a fantastic comeback to even get it into that position, really. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. Were you going to say something? No, no, I was going to say, yeah, I'm glad we didn't stuff it up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, speaking of the, the strong support that you had back home in Melbourne, uh, fans packed out a hall in Albert Park to watch the game on TV while mm-hmm. it was happening live over in Perth. The support and the awareness of the early to mid-90s NBL fans was probably like nothing we've ever seen since here in Australia. How, how do you compare that era of support with what you've experienced around the world in other leagues? Oh, look, that was uh, up there with the best. That's why um, you, know, you talked really about oh, going to the NBA or doing these different options. To be honest, the, the NBL was right up with everybody else. There were good times. The, the, the money was very even compared to Europe and, and Australia. Yeah, it was fantastic times. We, we had a, well, lucky enough, we were in a, a good era, great opposition. And, you know, I always talk about, you know, people ask what was the difference between then and now. I said, I suppose we had a lot of heroes and villains. And you've got to have light and dark. You've got to have variety. And, you know, I'd get booed at times. And Shane Hill would get booed. And they'd love Drewy and Copes. But they hated Shane Froling or Grant Kruger or Andrew Vlahoff. So people would go there for a reason just because I hate someone, I'm going to go and boo them or, or whatever. So whether it's personalities or, or, or styles of play or John Dorge myself used to always fight on the court. I like the guy. We used to get on fight off the court. But on the court, we'd always get tangled up and always be pushing and shoving and yelling at each other. And the crowd got into that and we got into it. And it wasn't staged. It was just what happened on the court. And Magic Tigers rivalry at the time was, was huge. And it was a good period to be involved with. Yeah, definitely. And um, you were on his team for a majority of this time, but Ray Gordon was also obviously a character that uh, people either loved or hated, depending on who he played for. So Yeah, was... yeah but the problem was that um, you know everyone used to uh, hate Ray when you play against him, but you'd played against him twice this season. We'd be on trying against him every day. 
and we need to put up with that. So uh, <laughs> you should feel sorry for us. But uh, yeah, he, he'd always, we'd always we'd stir him up. We'd always, I'd always give him the wrong score and see if I can get a reaction out of him or give him a pop, pop him as he comes through the key. And yeah, he, he'd want to fight everybody. Every day of practice, he'd fight everybody. He'd be taking on Lindsay. But um, white line fever, other side, quiet. Yeah, nicely spoken. Yeah, just uh, white line fever there for Ray Gordon. That's the perfect three words to describe him as far as at least from an outsider looking in. That's how I'd I'd describe him for sure. But he certainly played a a key role on your championship teams too. Yeah, definitely. Most Uh, definitely. Yeah. Now, I'd just like to talk a little bit about your stints with the Philadelphia 76ers. In about mid-October of 96, you signed with the Sixers as a free agent. Uh, Mm -hmm. You played, I think, 36 games during that Mm -hmm. season. Your best output was probably a near double-double that you had against the Charlotte Hornets in a March Mm -hmm. 97 game. Can you explain how difficult you found the sporadic minutes and opportunities in Philly, given the wealth of credentials that you had behind you that led to this well-earned opportunity to play at the highest level? Um, I think it's harder to be a bench player than a starter, to be honest. If you're talking about emotions, because um, you never know when you're going to get on. Quite often you get on for 30 seconds and the guard is down on the corner and dribble it out. And then, so you stand there and you wouldn't do anything. Play well in a game or eight games. I think be those those games where I had double or double or something. You start the second half and you're thinking, yep, this is good now. I'm getting a feel for it. I feel comfortable. And then you don't play it for the next five or six games, which is a week and a half. But you're like, oh, well, maybe I can't do it. And, and so your, your emotions go up and down all the time. And uh, we had some great talented players, but we weren't a very good team. Uh, we had Derek Coleman, Jerry Stackhouse, Alan Iverson, Clarence Weatherspoon. We had some really good players. Derek Coleman was one of the best players I've ever played against. He was outstanding. But we weren't a very good team. Um, we didn't really speak as, a, as teammates. And it showed in our, in our games. You know, I think we won 16 or 17 games for the season. It was frustrating. It was enjoyable. It was... Um, it, it, you had everything. Yeah, you'd have some great games. You'd think, all right, this is good. I can play here. I feel comfortable. But like I said, then you wouldn't play for two or three weeks. And you're just training. Or then you wouldn't train much. And you're like, well, what am I doing here? And, you know, but... Yeah, so it was. I think it was harder to be a bench player than to be a starter. If you're a starter, you know you get your minutes. You know where your, your shots are coming. You know you're going to get a you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever it is, to get into position. Whereas you're on the bench, you might get 30 seconds. You might get 30 minutes. You just never knew. Yeah. Now, how regularly were you in contact with some of your friends and teammates back in Australia during your time with the Sixers? Uh, very little, just bits and pieces. Um, not much. I think I just had a mobile phone then for the first time. So, yeah, like I said, it was this is before internet, before YouTube. <laughs> Seems so archaic. But um, you know, my wife was over there. But um, yeah, you just you go on the road, you do thing, you come home, and you you go to training, and you, yeah. So I wasn't communicating on a regular basis with anybody apart from you know Nicole. Just uh, when we we're over there, and uh, she'd have her frustrations and as well, seeing what was going on, and she was still trying to play a little bit as well in the tennis circuit. So. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a juggle, you know, nothing that no one else wasn't gone through. Yeah, sure. Now, how about fellow Aussie and big man as well, Luke Longley, because he was obviously playing for the three-time champion Bulls, yeah. and they're on their streak at that stage to win three yep. titles. So yep. did you get much conversation with Luke during the season, or was it mainly sort of out of playing days? Just before games, really. Um, I know Luke came to, was he in Philly? It might have been in Philly that the Bulls came. We played there first. Before the game, I was out in the court early shooting around, and Luke came out, we were having a chat, and introduced him to a few of his mates like Kerr and Bushler and Will Wennington and all that, and had a good chat with those guys, and then continued to warm up, and I don't think I played that game at all. And the next time we were in Chicago, Luke wasn't, no, he was playing, but so he must have been in the locker room. Anyway, so I'm shooting around. But Kerr and Bushler and Wennington, they all came up and said hello. Hey, how you doing? No worries. Yep. 
30 seconds, that was it. And I was like, wow, you know, my own teammates don't really come up and communicate to you. But the Chicago Bulls knew their roles. They weren't intimidated by anybody. And that's why they won 72 games out of the 82 games. They, they feared no one. They were confident in their own abilities. And I thought, you know what, that's a good team. So, you know, Luke had an awesome career, and I think he got with a good group of people at that right time as well. You know, Jordan obviously did his thing, and Rodman did his, but, um, yeah, I think the core group uh, were really tight there in Chicago, and it obviously showed, you know. I was lucky enough, I sat down with Phil Jackson five or six years ago. He was out here for the Australian Open at the tennis, and he was in the tennis players' locker room because I was in the lounge, and I was down there with my wife was doing some stuff, and he was sitting there by himself, so I said, you know what, I'm going to go and talk to him. So I walked over and said, hey, I'm... Mark, I'm a friend of Luke Longley's. And I said, do you mind if I sit down? He goes, no, sure. So I had a great half hour, 40 minute chat with him. But you can see, you know, you hear about what Phil Jackson does, but you could, once you're just in his presence, you can see that he had a, a, an effect over all the people around him, whether it's the Lakers, the Bulls or, or whatever. And he just, he brings out the best in those people. And that's why the Bulls were so good because they were comfortable. They knew, they, they, were, they understood their roles. Definitely. That's a great story about meeting up with Phil Jackson too. That's very impressive. Uh, mm. Now, and it's a bit disheartening really to hear you say that you had more conversation perhaps with some of the Bulls role players than perhaps some of your own teammates during that season. So, oh, yeah, um, that's, yeah, that's disappointing. The assistant coaches would come up to me at practice before we'd start. I'd be there shooting around early. And they'd say, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And he goes, no, they'd say, just stay with it. It's okay. This is not a normal NBA team. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he says, this is not normal. You'll be right. Just relax. And uh, they sort of knew as well that we had a few knuckleheads maybe. They didn't quite get on as well. But uh, yeah, so they, yeah, it, was, it was quite funny. And uh, I sort of smile and just keep on working away. But uh, yeah, it was one of those things. Yeah, that's true. I suppose. Can't pick your moments sometimes. No, yeah, that's right. I had Bill Winnington as the first guest on my podcast, actually. And he couldn't have been more accommodating and friendly and helpful yeah. to me, even just as a random guy in Australia. So that's good to yep. hear that he's obviously a nice guy uh, on yeah. court as well. Exactly. Yeah. You've mentioned some of the eclectic array of personalities that were on that roster. You've already mentioned about Michael Cage. Obviously, he was a veteran at that stage. But yep. he also briefly played with Doug Overton, who was a former NBL All-Star for one season back in the early 90s. Did you have much to do with Doug Overton at that time? A little bit. A little bit. But um, the NBA is a uh, interesting beast because we're a bad team. The players are trying to position themselves with, you know, with Allen Iverson or Stackhouse or something, be friends with them to get on his good side. So if management came and said, oh, who should we keep next year? Or mm. And, you know, so it, it's a, it can be a very selfish game. If you average two points a game, you don't get a contract. You get four to five points a game, you get a contract next year. So whether you move the ball on, whether you do something, you know, I had no problem with Doug, you know, it was fine. But you can see the different personalities. You say, well, hang on, I can see what he's doing. He's doing it that way, trying to be mates with him or trying to get his own points so he can get a contract next year. Because they're all trying to, you know, they're, they're, it's a dog-eat-dog world, world out there. Yeah, it's a bit of politicking for sure, no doubt. Now, yeah, there's yeah. just one last guy I'd like to ask you about from your NBA days, and you've mentioned him already, Clarence Weatherspoon. He's a favourite yep. of one of my great friends, Todd. Uh, he loves the work ethic Weatherspoon had yep. through his whole career. Do you mind just yep. talking a little bit about him? Because you seem to be talking a bit fondly about memories of him. Yeah, no, he was a, a good, a very quiet person, but a good person who, who probably he didn't really fit there. You know, he, he was in Philly for a long time, and Philly fans loved him because they loved blue collar hard workers, and he was one of those guys, extremely talented. He could go and get you twenty and twenty on a night as well. 
a bit like a Charles Barkley frame, uh, undersized, really wide, stocky, great base, good backside. He'd, he'd spin and post you down low and just turn up and dunk on you. Yeah, I thought he was, um, if he was in a better team, he would have got a lot more recognition. But he was a, uh, a very good hard worker, would do all the dirty stuff, you know, like scrapping and diving and loose balls. And he wasn't all about the flash. He was um, a hard, hard worker. So, uh, yeah, a lot of time for him. Uh, good to hear. Now, you returned to Australia in 1997 after leaving the Sixers and you rejoined a then struggling Melbourne Tigers outfit. They stumbled out of the blocks as we mentioned a bit earlier and then you obviously steadied the ship and went on to win that second NBL championship. In the space of a few months, you pretty much went from a a struggling NBA franchise, putting it mildly, to then winning Mm. a title with an NBL team back in your home country. So how was that period of your career moving back to Australia, Mark? Uh, yeah, well, look, it was great. You know, I get to play with teammates, friends, uh, which was probably the most uh, exciting prospect for me to come back and play. We picked up a little guy called Marcus Timmons, who uh, has to take a lot of credit for the way we, we turned our season around because he was fantastic. But um, I, I didn't even bother trying to go back to the NBA. I didn't even ask any questions because I was in a good space. You know, we'll, we just won the title here, had good friends. We, Yeah, I, I, I didn't see... Any benefit of trying to go back to the NBA? I thought, yeah, you know, like I said, that the Tigers team at that time and the people we were surrounded with and the, the time in my life there, I thought that was the place to be. So I was very happy and content to uh, come back um, at that time. Understandable. And we've mentioned these guys a bit already. Andrew Gaze, obviously Australia's greatest player, and yep. uh, Leonard Copeland, another great to play in the NBL here. Do you yep. mind just talking a little bit more about those guys and just the relationship that you've developed over these years and just how important the three of you guys were and even obviously your surrounding teammates as well, but how, how good that run was during your time with the Tigers? Yeah, we were lucky. We were all about the same age. We come together and we sort of complemented each other, I think, uh, to certain areas. All had different personalities. Sometimes you had to play team psychologist. You know, Copes was a fantastic shooter, slasher. Great personality. He was a life of the bus. On the, you know, we were, we'd always play cards or dominoes on the road. Um, he was always the most vocal person. He 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 bring the team up all the time. He was really good. Andrew was intense. He was um you know the game winner. But but you put Coach and Drew together, stick him on the back of the bus, and you don't have to say anything. You just sit there, and those guys would just go off, and it was very very funny. Um yeah, so we had a really good relationship. Like I said, I started playing with the Boomers with Drewy in about '87. He retired 2005. And then I was with Coach from yeah '93 through, and then we both left and went up to Brisbane. So I had another year there with Brisbane's Cope. So uh, they're both very good friends and good people to be around. Like we talked about before about quality people, they they stick around a long time. So they're both yeah very highly respected. No matter where they meet people and all that, they always come out with the same impressions that you know that I got after playing with you know 14, 15 years with these guys. Yeah, good people. Yeah, that's great to hear. And Andrew was extremely kind. Only in about the fourth episode of this podcast, he gave me almost an hour and three quarters of his time to talk about oh, his really? career so i think i yeah. might have bored him senseless but i loved it and um yeah he's just a great guy so uh i can mm. definitely echo that sentiment even just from having one interaction with him how how are your tigers practice sessions like did you have any sort of shooting contests or how good was obviously we know andrew's probably one of the greatest shooters we've ever seen along with shane hill and a few others perhaps but did yeah. he sort of put on a bit of a show with his long range shooting during practice sessions no we'd kill him we'd kill him <laughs> um look a lot of times, Lindsay used to play the starters as one team and the second five as the other team. So, you know, you couldn't really dominate the ball or hog the ball because we'd let them know. Um, you know, he, he'd do some amazing things. Coach would do some amazing things. There'd be a lot of trash talking, mm. uh, you know, between Coach and Ray Gordon. They'd be going at it all the time. 
or, or whatever, you know, we have great players like Marcus there all the time, and Bennett Davison, or it was a good environment to be with, you know, sometimes you get pissed off with each other, if you've seen each other for the 10, 15 years straight, yeah. you know, you, you get shitty with someone, you wouldn't talk to them for a while, that was just, that's just what happens, you know, in a normal marriage you do that, so it was always good, we always liked to get on the road, because we'd either, we'd sit down and play cards, or like I said, dominoes, or we'd have a couple of beers, and we, if we, had, we were angry with each other, we'd, we'd sort it out in the car ride down to somewhere, or over a beer, or something like that, so nothing ever bored over to anything serious like I said we resolved issues very quickly mm -hmm. yeah like I said all the personalities work really well together some people are loud some people would stir them up some people would be the pacifier then like I said we all weren't the same but we all got on yeah good to hear I get the sense that after I've spoken with uh, Andrew Gaze and Luke Longley in previous episodes of this show and having talked with you so far today the main goal of your careers while well, one of the the highlights would be representing australia first and foremost do you think that's accurate yeah yep i think that's the pinnacle too like i said it's all about trying to test yourself against the best in the world and olympic games for basketball is the greatest so to go out there and whether you play against the USA with Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal, or you're playing against Angola or New Zealand or Fiji when you got qualifications, it didn't matter because um, you're with a group of guys who uh, were committed. Some of the most passionate people, you know, you know Scott Fisher going off on people when he was representing Australia, you know, so it means a lot to a lot of people. So um, you always go out there 100% and trying to um, yeah, do your very best. Yeah, very true. I've got just a few more questions for you, Mark. I really yep. appreciate your time yep. today. Yep. Thanks. Okay. In 2002, you won the NBL Most Valuable Player Award. Yep. Where does that rank within your career that's been filled by such notable achievements? Um, I think it was nice recognition for the, for the work you've done. Yeah, Andrew got injured that year early. So there was more responsibility to make on more, more of a scoring role as well, which I enjoyed. It's a very nice accolade to win, you know, and to, to look back now and say, yeah, you were the MVP of a year, I'm saying that's fantastic. So um, I don't know if my kids actually know that I did that yet, but um, <laughs> they don't think my 13-year-old doesn't know if I ever played. He seems to think I know nothing, but uh, that's what, that's a father-son issue. But yeah, it's a great you know, achievement to look back on and say, yeah, that was great. I had a good year there. I get the feeling that you're probably you more embrace the team concept anyhow, so it's maybe not something that you openly yeah. admit to perhaps too all that often. Yeah, no, like like I said, to be honest, um, it was all about you know trying to win because um, individual accolades are fantastic, but it's really hard to say let's go out for a drink and celebrate how good I am. Um, <laughs> it's always a bit hard that way. But if you go out there and say, hey, how good were we? You know, we can lie as much as we want because we're all telling each other how great we are. Um, that's a lot more enjoyable to be around. Yeah. Totally. What's your level of involvement these days with basketball? Juniors, looking after uh, my, I've got a 13-year-old and a 9-year-old, so I help out with the junior programs a bit there. Try to get out of the senior tigers a little bit now and then and help out, have a chat with the guys, play one-on-one, -on -one, but get beaten up pretty badly against Wertho and Scott Morrison and all those guys. I want to get more involved. I want to see a good pathway for, for my kids to, to progress, and obviously every other kid gets the benefit of that as well. Yeah, I want to see basketball continue to grow. Yep. And now, opportunities for them all, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And in recent weeks, the NBL has been at the forefront of some of the discussion here in Australia to do with the growth of the game and where it's actually heading. Where do you sort of think it is right now and what do you hope or where do you hope it actually goes to in the coming years? Well, obviously, we want to try and get it back to where it used to be. 
I think the participation rates in juniors and domestic basketball is huge. In a lot of ways, I'd like to see it go back to wintertime. I think if we can have a fill-in, because if you follow anybody on Twitter, when the NBA season and the NBA season finishes, everyone's like, what What do we do now? So I think there's a great opportunity to go and slot it back into the wintertime. We'll get better quality imports. Our overseas players will come back and play. Oh, that's what I'd like to see. Um, that way I can watch basketball year-round. And uh, that would make me happy, but also I think the game would actually grow. Have a shorter season, squeeze it in between the NBA seasons and the European seasons, and I think that would be a, a big bonus. But um, I don't have a lot of power in these things, so uh, I'll have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, I like I like your thinking, though, because uh, the way it was back in the in the era, particularly during the 90s when you were playing at, at your mm. highest level, like the crowd support and just the interest in the game, games were live on TV. It was just a great, great era to yeah. be in. So hopefully we can get back to something close to that. And just Yeah, I think um, they always worry about the AFL, the NRL and all that. You know mm. what? We're not going to compete with them. We don't want to compete with them. We're, we're, a, we're, a, we're something on the side, but at the moment we're competing against the NBA. That's more of a threat than the AFL to us, I think. So, you know, do you want to watch teams that you don't know? You know, if I'm in Melbourne and I'm watching Adelaide Townsville, or do I watch LeBron James? LeBron's playing and I maybe I watch LeBron instead. So I reckon if we can flip it so we don't have to compete against the NBA, don't worry about the AFL or the NRL because um, they're different people anyway. No, you make a great point there for sure. You talked about wanting to perhaps increase your involvement with the game at a higher level. Is coaching an area that you'd be interested in going into or is it some other part of the sport? No, I like coaching. I'm in an indoor sports centre at the moment and so we're looking at getting some more basketball courts. We've got five courts set up now but we're going to probably set up a couple of basketball courts and I might even start my own sort of little academy type thing but really emphasising big man type skills. That will do a little bit of that. I'd like to try and, yeah, obviously, on the junior side of things, at the NBL a bit, you know, as much as my work will allow me. If I can go and rebound for where though, at shooting practice, I am happy to do that. If I can help out the eight-year-old kids how to dribble, I'm happy to do that too. So uh, whatever it takes. Yeah, I like that. I really like where you're coming from there, Mark, and I hope that it does indeed happen in the near future or whenever it is that you want it to take place. So just one last question for you. How can listeners follow your movements online and keep up with you? I know you're on Twitter, so is that the best place to be reached? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I never do one thing on Facebook. I do a little bit on Twitter, but um, yeah. Like I said, I'm just, it feels like another lifetime away uh, playing basketball, so I'm just uh, one of the keen observers on the side trying to uh, watch everybody else, see what we can do and how we can, um, yes, yeah, see the game grow. Good. Now, it's been really great having a time to chat with you today. Thanks for taking time out of your work schedule to speak with me, and I do appreciate your time. Yep, no worries. Any time. Thanks, Mark. Thanks again, Mark. It was a pleasure to have you as a guest. I encourage you to interact with the show, suggest topics for future episodes, or guests that you'd like to hear conversations with. I welcome voicemail comments on my website or Facebook page. There's been some more great feedback since the last episode. So thanks to Aaron Rosbury and Nate52, aka Nate Lindham, for your wonderful iTunes reviews, recently added to the Australian and USA stores, respectively. It's great to see feedback continuing to build. I'm really, really thankful for that. Worldwide, the show currently has 24 reviews and now it's reached 30 five-star ratings. So thank you to everyone who has contributed to that tally. If you add a review, I'd love to mention your name in a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are like a Showtime era Magic Johnson pass, the ultimate assist. They help me to reach a wider audience for the podcast and in turn, that gives you as a listener more opportunity to hear conversations with great guests. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my show on iTunes or you can simply add my RSS feed. Just check out the right-hand sidebar of my website. 
You can hear the show on multiple podcatchers on Stitcher, Player FM. It's also available through the Zune Marketplace on Windows Phone. It can be accessed in plenty of different ways. If it's not on one of the platforms that you use, please do let me know and I'll try and make sure it is available there in the future. Just a quick note that I'd like to finish with. The regularity of these episodes does vary. Sometimes I can put out one each week. It might be one a fortnight. Then all of a sudden there's two in the space of three or four days. It just really depends on the availability of the guests. And whilst I would like to have a more regular release pattern sometimes just because of my work schedule and the availability of the guests it's just not possible so i hope you don't mind that they can be somewhat scattershot when they're released i am going to do my best to try and make it more of a regular schedule but it's just not always possible thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high profile guests follow me on twitter at in Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash in all Join me next time for another edition of the show.